what is the route to change? Is it through emphasizing the pain or is it through emphasizing something else? Hello, and welcome to The Feminist Present, the podcast where we use the gift of feminism to figure out what's going on. I'm Adrian Dobb. I'm Laura Good, and today I'm so excited that we got to speak to not only like an excellent writer and scholar, but one of my teachers and mentors, Alex Marzano Lesnovich. Um, I met Alex when they were my one of my instructors at the Breadloaf Writers Conference in, God, it was in August 2019, and I, I look back at this time now as like, the sort of last halcyon moment before the pandemic descended. Yeah, it's all like in sepia tones. Like yes. It was always summer. Completely. No one There's was There's always masked. a tinkly piano music playing. Totally. And it really was. And everyone was always like, there's no such thing as a pandemic. Totally. Well, and I'm like, I texted you from this conference. I was like, this is an idyllic wonderland where like every time I leave my room, I just fall into a conversation with some brilliant person. And it was like very idyllic. We so should have, we should have known that there was another shoe about to we drop should here. have known i know i know anxiety failed us in this regard so i met alex and they were my teacher and just like the most skilled thoughtful person on the craft of creative nonfiction. something i really prized early about alex was they are someone who has thought deeply about the ethics of personal nonfiction and about writing about mm. you know one's personal contacts in said nonfiction. they are the author of a book called the fact of a body a murder and a memoir which details Alex's experiences when they were a lawyer working, I forget what lefty organization they were working for, but a lefty organization in the South defending someone on death row who was accused of molesting children. And during the process of trying to exonerate this person, Alex also had to come really face to face with their own history as an incest survivor. So it's like one of the most ethically complex books I've ever read and an absolute masterclass on like the ethics of creative nonfiction. And Alex is just a boss. So that's a little bit about Alex. And yet we didn't talk to Alex about creative nonfiction at all, but about creative fiction. Totally. Yes. So take us to the bridge of the work, the work of literature we discussed in this talk. So uh, we are continuing our book club, Mm -hmm. which sort of, I think, will bob and weave between the between the foundational texts yep. and the right now. Yep. Um, and this is one of the foundational texts. This is as foundational as, as it gets. Sure does. It is a book. I mean, you know, you know you've done something right when it says on the cover of your book, the you know, the first lesbian novel or whatever. Does it say uh, the, the lesbian classic? Or... And my cover, it says a 1920s classic of lesbian fiction. Okay, so I guess that's a lot. But I mean, it's been described as the first lesbian novel, which, you know, that's, yes. that, that's maybe a bit overstating it, but... Um, yeah, Radcliffe Hall and The Well of Loneliness uh, definitely uh, beat a lot of others to the punch. And uh, yeah, and that's the that's the book we're talking about here. It's also a book that I feel like it's the first and only book in this little series of ours that it seemed like all three of us had encountered in classroom settings. So I do yeah, think, good point. you know, yeah. slight trigger warning, it gets a little 
wonkier and nerdier than we usually try to. That is a hilarious trigger warning. Trigger warning, scholarship. <laughs> yeah. Well, not, yeah, just like, you know, like, like it's, you can tell that like that Alex and, uh, and me and you have all like either taught this or taken classes with it or both. Totally. I think what you're giving is not so much a trigger warning as perhaps a nerd alert is, is maybe the warning that's coming here. I don't know. I mean, I, I think people come to us for, for the life and the sweetness of, of certainly the, that's why people come to us of, yes of all of it and, and, and <laughs> here we are you know just hitting them hard with a literary theory right hook or whatever i, I don't i don't know boxing metaphors Instead i think of- i think we kept enough we kept enough theory out of this to keep me engaged at least but it is to me i think the trigger warning is more like in addition to nerd alert like it's an incredibly sad and depressing yes, book you know and we de- we definitely got into that with alex of like what is the function of lesbian literature that is this depressing and we also got into alex can this reasonably be classified as That's lesbian right. literature, which I think is perhaps the richer question of the moment, because, you know, trans politics, trans language, public understanding of trans lives has obviously dramatically changed since the 1920s in the last hundred years. And I think there's a pretty compelling case to be made that this is a trans novel, yeah. you know, or could be considered one. Yeah. Should we let folks decide for themselves and uh, and yes. we start with that exact conversation? Uh, so if you want to find out whether The Well of Loneliness is indeed, as advertised, a classic of lesbian literature or is no such thing, gasp. Um, <laughs> Listen on. Uh, we imagine yeah, this question has been keeping you up at night for as many years as it has been keeping us up at night. So so rest easy. Yeah, yeah we're all picturing you just driving down the highway or like, I don't know, uh, lathering down the shower being like, so is it a lesbian novel? Someone or is it a decide this. Lesbian literature or not? Like, you're like, you're like at the boardwalk, you know, licking an ice cream cone and you're like, uh, it's still obsessing me. Is it a lesbian classic or is it not? This this imaginary discussion that you're that you're sort of hypothesizing here reminds me of do you remember the time that I retroactively invented gay bathhouses at the Clayman Institute for Gender Research? Do you remember this? <laughs> I, I don't. I came home like. Well, from, how come I, I've never I, been invited to these? This is my 20s all over again. I've been trying to figure out how to exercise on Stanford's campus because it's like all anyone does there. Um, and so sure. I took like a little hike around the dish or the lake or whatever the fuck it is. I still don't know what anything's called. Came back like lightly sweaty to my office at Clayman. Didn't have enough time to like walk over to the actual gym and take a proper shower. And in doing so, I was like, man, I bet there's a lot of like students, primarily probably gay and trans students or faculty or whatever at Stanford who like might feel a little intimidated by the general showers. Like maybe it would be a good idea for the Clayman Institute for Gender Research to like have showers. And then the next thought was like, did I just invent gay bathhouses on like the university's dime? So like that's the future liberals want, I would say. I, I mean, I'm I'm. I'm gonna send out the grant this this afternoon. Uh, let's. Uh, You're the man who could make this. this happen. So, make so make it happen. happen. <laughs> so is this a scholarly right, well, thing? Is like, I can't. I can assure you, it's not. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I think there's arguments. Adrian and I will prepare our arguments for this development yes. as you all take it across the bridge and listen to this discussion. Yeah. Well, we 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 will retire to Plato's cave with you all. Is that what it's called? Or I, you're the gay Plato's male scholar, man. I, I'm trusting you on this. It's Plato's retreat, I think. I, it's yeah, it's been closed for a long time. Uh, symp- I mean, you're not talking about the, the okay. mindset, whatever it is. I think it is a cave. Okay. 
We'll take it to the we'll We take are it educators. Show. All right. Thank you for joining us once again. Please enjoy our discussion with the wonderful Alex Marzano Lesovich. Enjoy. Okay, so Alex, thank you so much for joining us to discuss the classic text, The Well of Loneliness by Radcliffe Hall. I am revisiting a book that I literally read my freshman year of college in Feminist Text 1, which feels very appropriate to the scope of this discussion. And so I got to revisit my own note-taking process from 2002 as well, which basically consisted of making zero annotations except for underlining every time the word queer appeared. So, like, I was a really sophisticated college first year. But, like, that was also kind of useful because the word queer appears at least 50 times in the first 50 or so pages. And I guess that's where we can start. Did that stand out to both of you? Yeah. Well, I'm so curious how it was framed in that class. Because I have to say, I I had the opposite experience where I never read it. I avoided it completely. Oh, tell me more. You know, what did I need of more loneliness? Right? Like, why did I want something with loneliness in the title? It is a despondent book. Yeah. yeah. And I did I did not know that. I also, like, as someone who identified as a lesbian until I came out as trans, and I do not identify as a lesbian, um, I sort of thought, oh, well, this isn't quite for me where I'm at. Like, I don't need more loneliness, and I don't need another lesbian text right now. And then um, mm-hmm. the pandemic hit. And, you know, we were all kind of stuck with our bookshelves. And loneliness. <laughs> and loneliness. And I I picked up a practice from a writer friend of mine, Christopher Casalini. And when it first hit, I just read three chapters of a book to start the morning. I was sort of like, okay, I'm going to be in this other world rather than this. So I started with Middlemarch. had like a yeah. really lovely experience because I hadn't read Middlemarch. And mm-hmm. saw this and was like, the chapters are approximately the right length to do that. Okay, I'll go in. I'll start. Yeah. And then I freaked out because I was like, wait, lesbian is on the cover. Are we sure this is a lesbian text? Yeah. I don't think so. Thank you. Yes. So queer struck me, but um, but even more like all the different ways Stephen describes. And I have no, I was thinking in advance of this recording, like what the heck pronouns are we going to use when we talk about Stephen? Um, right. I have no idea. Truly. So um, so for me, I'm not sure queer stuck out so much as like some of the ideas feel quite modern or feel and mm-hmm. feel under discussed some ideas feel not at all modern and feel like oh god that crushing weight of loneliness again that that was so tied to how this book got written and yes that is a long way to say yes laura yes it did yes the queerness yeah. of this text is, is <laughs> sure very did. yeah i mean i could go and i had so many of the same reactions but adrian i'm curious to hear like what's your journey with this book like when did you first read it how was your re reread of it so i also think i read it in my first year of college i don't have the copy i used anymore mm-hmm. although i do imagine my annotations were probably a lot of symbolism question mark um uh, <laughs> i was that i was that freshman uh like yeah that was Uh, almost that like almost took out my entire computer i almost literally spit take to that but go on i'm I'm sorry (laughs) but yeah i i think um i reread it a couple of years ago um 
a couple of years ago, a decade ago to teach it. Mm. And I had exactly Alex's experience mm-hmm. where I, I said, I wanted a lesbian novel and I am not sure this is it. And by now I only teach it to kind of show to students. So I teach it quite a bit and I teach it mostly to kind of show that, you know, our modern terminologies and categorizations like really are still very inchoate. And at this moment, mm-hmm. it isn't not a lesbian novel, but like, I think the way Alex put it, like, are we sure is hovers all over this thing. It's like, it's really, really hard to say what it is about, which is, of course, so beautiful because it ends with that, you know, it's not a spoiler alert. It's called The Well of Loneliness with this sort of heartrending plea from our protagonist about mm-hmm. like acknowledgement. And it's like, this is a book about demanding acknowledgement. And at the same time, like, I'm not sure we we are at this particular moment even well equipped to acknowledge exactly the experience being described here. And that's what's so beautiful about it. It's saying like, you have yeah. to do this. You have, there's a, it's morally incumbent on you to acknowledge this, but it turns out maybe our, even our current vocabulary isn't quite up to the challenge. And that to me, that's a beautiful thing for a book to kind of pose that riddle. Mm. And at the same mm-hmm. time, sort of be really open about the fact, like how much is writing on the fact that you think deeply and, and carefully about it. Mm-hmm. I think it might be helpful if we get a little more explicit about the gender trouble that we're trying to name here. Alex, help me out, but I will start to string this together in the way that I see it. The main character in this book, the protagonist of this book is named Stephen. The character's name is actually Stephen on the birth certificate. So from day one of this character's life, there's some gender trouble. The parents of Stephen refer to Stephen as a girl, but there's an encroaching understanding throughout like the first section of the book that Stephen's father is willing to raise her as a boy, partially because he regrets not having a boy and partially because he sees a masculinity, for lack of a more nuanced word, in her. So she grows up in this profoundly divided place where one of her parents definitely rejects anything but just like straight femininity for this daughter and one of the parents is at least comfortable with some ambiguity right and then this Stephen female identified sort of male presenting person goes out and falls in love with women in the world and in world war one and it's kind of a gaze in the military book too but like alex fill in my missing pieces or like your impressions of sort of, is this a trans book or is this a lesbian book or both? So Stephen's father dies mid-sentence telling <laughs> Stephen's mother, like, we cannot get more dramatic than this. Stephen's totally. father is finally going to tell Anna. Stephen's father, Philip, is finally going to tell Anna, Stephen's mother, some sense and give, to Adrian's point, like, give language to who Stephen is. Yes. And, um... Which has become like a rift in the marriage too. Like there's yeah. there's a growing rift in the parents' marriage about this. Yeah. Like it's a big unspoken boogeyman. Go on, sorry for interrupting. And it's a boogeyman that like casts a, a shadow of what might have been mm-hmm. if Philip were only able to complete that sentence. We can sort of imagine a life for Stephen in which Stephen might have been accepted by Anna, might have been less lonely, might have no. been able to declare more about who they yes. are. But no, it's not to be. And he dies mid-sentence. And I, I think that that almost, that sensation of we almost might get there, we almost might come to a place mm. of recognition mm. recurs repeatedly throughout the text. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There is a really, and I think 
I, I want to say, I can't remember if the words both and neither actually appear in this book. I think they might, but there is a real both and neither quality to Stephen. And like, I heard you use they in application to Stephen, Alex. And I think that seems most accurate to me in the in the way the character of Stephen is portrayed. Like, they seem like a they, you know what I'm saying? I mean, obviously, right? We don't know what a fictional character. We, we have no idea. We yeah. choose from language that was not available to them even at the time. Where they <laughs> which, which is, is what, what the book is about. about. Yes. Which is very much what the book is about. And Adrian, like, I, I love that you're using it to talk about terminology because to mm-hmm. me, one of the central questions of this book and one of the central questions of Stephen's life as portrayed and maybe of Radcliffe's all, which we can see to Paul's life as we can get to, and certainly of the modern reader reading this text now is, what do we do when there is no language that will yeah. be easily understood? How do we do we do we say, Completely. okay, this is a lesbian novel? Or do we try to look for some some space in that? So pronoun-wise, I just have no yeah. idea. Fair enough. Any probably would be in, in Stephen's Twitter bio today, any pronouns. Uh, so it's true. There's sort of the unavailability of language. And then I'm also, because I'm fascinated with sort of the theory of sex, there is, of course, also a language that she... They, he inherits from, that Stephen inherits from their father, right? Which is the language of sexology, which is super interesting. So Philip is his name, right? Sir Philip. The father, yeah. Uh, yeah. Sir Philip is sort of onto what's going on thanks to this actual book that really exists. And Stephen figures out what's going on through this book by you know, Kraft Ebing, the Psychopathia Sexualis. What's interesting about that, of course, is like, I think we're supposed to sort of understand this as a moment of self-recognition but of course everything turns on whether or not that's actually true right like or is this sort of a paternal authority imposing a terminology on what again doesn't quite get it right right and for me that moment which happens twice in the book right that sir philip sort of goes into his library and is like oh i get it right the penny drops and then stephen goes to the library and is like, oh also yeah um <laughs> right so but what is that oh like, is it a moment of like, yes, this is this is me, or is it fine? This will do, and then actually it mischaracterizes who this person really is, and and that's of course that's that's sort of at the heart of this question of identity, right? And it's something that is very much an ambivalence that Radcliffe Hall picks up on in those books themselves. Mm. That they sort of oscillate between the excitement of sayability, being like this exists, people, and you better get used to it. And kind of starting to prescribe what it must all mean and like the way to be like this, right? And it goes both directions. I love those moments because they feel, in retrospect, I'm not sure if Radical Fall intended them like that, but they feel pretty ambivalent in that like, is it, of course it's good to have language for this, but is it good to have some old straight Austrian dudes language for it? Like, isn't that maybe, like, is is that as happy a circumstance as we might be led to believe? I don't know. I find, I find those, Mm. those moments just so, so rich. Mm -hmm. I love that you're highlighting this because I think that tension is not only inescapable and is inescapable whenever we use language to talk about identity because language is fixed in a way that identity is not. And I, I think the close enough or versus is this me is this really me or is it a close a moment of close enough it can only be me for like a fleeting instant right and then there's some sort of nuance that does not attach to a term that does attach to the multiplicity of a person but and i also think we're getting into questions i also think we're getting into questions that sort of trouble modern tellings of transgender lives and transgender narrative which is like the shape 
the way a medicalized shape of what you have to do to be able to access transition, to be able to be seen as transgender, the way that these narratives, not that those things are in any way the same, but the way that these narratives are sort of shaped and then become something that someone else can recognize, but then how mm. much do they prescribe the shape that one's self-identification takes in the yeah. language. This feels like an obvious point, but I'm just sort of synthesizing what both of you are saying so eloquently and realizing that the central loneliness of the novel, which is like the main character of the novel, is loneliness, is synonymous with the limits of language. You know, like the loneliness is, is completely engendered by, as you were saying, Alex, the sort of near-miss quality of all of these relationships, of this sort of asymptotic approach of like you know, I can almost see you, I can almost accept you, I can almost love you, but never quite getting there. Like that is is mm. the ping pong energy that, that, that happens throughout the book that of course, someone is lonely at the end of that and throughout all of it <laughs> of never being seen, never being known, never being loved. Can we put a little bit just because I'm sitting here with two like very accomplished professors? Can we put like a little more historical frame on this book? This book was published in 1928. It caused quite a ruckus. Um, I would love to talk about the book's entrance into the world and also Radcliffe Hall as an author. So like Adrian, to frame that question even a little bit more, is this a book that you've taught in like queer lit classes? Like when you've taught this, in what classes has it appeared? And then how does that interact with these historical questions? Yeah, it's usually around queer theory. You know, it's a perfect vehicle for that. Radcliffe Hall, like you said, you know, is of that generation that, you know, where we get you know, our first big firsts or big LGBT firsts, right? I mean, like, and Well of Loneliness comes out, I think, the same year as Orlando, right? So, like, this is a moment when gender nonconformity sort of starts narrating itself. Radcliffe Hall is also coming out of a, a kind of a modernist concern. I think that's the almost quality that you get at. So there's a kind of formally interesting quality to the book in the sense that what this loneliness gets at is ultimately intersubjectivity as such. The mm. fact that we have trouble relating to other people. Because one, one of the interesting things about the Kraft Ebing book, just to get back to that for one second, um, is because I love that scene so much. Kraft Ebing like, has some pretty terrible things to say about LGBT people, but his great contribution to the discourse was that he let the people themselves talk, right? That, that he will present a case and he will never kind of generalize. He'll just say, here's what this person told me. And then have, I mean, they're not block quotes, but like you feel like every other sentence in that little one page snippet about like a particular paraphilia that he's interested in, like is basically from someone who claims to quote unquote suffer from that paraphilia, right? And it becomes this really interesting thing where these are some of the earliest, while on the one hand, like a lot of it is quite judgmental and is called psychopathia sexualis, which obviously like is not awesome. Nevertheless, it, these may be the longest documents where without judgment, LGBT people can just kind of hold forth on like, these were my first experiences. Here's what I think I think it means, et cetera, et cetera, right? So when Stephen encounters that, what he's encountering is, or what they're encountering, sorry, is basically, is someone else's narrative, right? Mm -hmm. Also of mm -hmm. queerness of some kind, right? Of gender queerness. And yet, like the book sort of, as you say, almost maps onto the book, but also doesn't. And so like th this idea that like, yeah, that sharing is really important and, and builds community, et cetera, but that it ultimately also like mm. contains this kind of kernel of loneliness, I think is just like, it, it makes the book such a classic modernist text too, which, which I think the other person, no matter how much you may share with them, is kind of this cosmos that you have 
ultimately very little purchase on, I think is, is really central to this book. And so I have taught it mostly in queer theory contexts, but I like the fact that it's also an ambitious and aesthetically ambitious book and sort of really speaks to its moment, mm -hmm. even if it weren't, you know, a lesbian novel. It, it kind of gets at a kind of worry about like, what does it mean to share something with someone uh, at, at a very, very basic level? Well, I think it's rightful to call it a classic modernist novel in that sense, too. I really like that frame yeah, that yeah. you brought into it. Alex, what would you want to add to that? I would want us to remember to include like the sort of, yes, there's that loneliness, but there's also the loneliness of Stephen's like internalized queer, I don't want to call it like queer phobia, self-hatred, yeah. et cetera, mm -hmm. that um, makes the book difficult for so many modern yeah. queer readers to read. To relate to. It's yeah. quite yes. painful text to read by the end. And not maybe let's include like the character's literal loneliness where at the end, they are in some way loved by another person and they blow that up. They blow that up and, yeah. and self-identify as unlovable as it is impossible to be loved. And the plea that is made at the end where they sort of imagine the voices of other people like them um, or imagine the bodies of other people like them in the same room, asking Stephen to sort of speak for them, to ask for acceptance. It's a low bar. It's a low ask. Yeah, yeah. It's basically tolerance not mm -hmm. anything further it is yeah. certainly not understanding it is certainly not knowledge mm -hmm. or joy or love yeah yeah and so that that element of loneliness is also there that feels quite visceral um in a way that maybe a, a more aesthetic loneliness doesn't feel i think quite as visceral and it makes it hard to have this be a queer classic because if it's a queer classic it's a queer classic of being Mm -hmm, yeah. mm -hmm. And in fact, came under, from what I understand, came under a certain amount of critique at the time period for Radcliffe Hall amplifying the pain in the text versus yeah. what was actually possible socially and using pain as a way to say, we need acceptance because look at this pain, look yeah. at the mm -hmm. size of the harm. And so, mm. you know, making a political in through, through harm, not through joy, not through, you know, all, all these sort of debates we're still having in queer theory, we're still having queer politics. It's like, what is the route to change? Is it through emphasizing the pain or is it through emphasizing something else? And that also is a layer that I find very interesting in this book, very sort of difficult to read. I remember having like a fabulous time reading it for most of the text, just being yeah. like, oh, hooray, thank God. And then getting to that end and just oh, feeling yeah. utterly devastated by that choice. And the choice on the part of the writer, the choice on the part of Stephen. Mm -hmm. That's the that's the thing, right? That like it almost Aracliff Hall's life kind of almost testifies more to the limit of creating queer media at the time than queer lives. Like it's the, Radcliffe Hall's life. I always assure my students appears to have been way happier than Stephen's. Like there is a narrative convention that sort of with thudding inevitability kind of comes in and is like, this isn't going to work out, right? Like you, your hatred has to take over. That's not true for Radcliffe Hall, right? Like what it did really limit was her career, right? Like mm -hmm. I think the next novel had to appear basically kind of anonymously because it was like, oh, is this going to be another one of those novels? Um, you know, it was banned in a bunch of places. There were lots of court cases, et cetera, et cetera. It is in some way as a book, more of a testament through the limits of media about queer lives than it is a testament to the limits of queer lives at the time. I mean, obviously, mm -hmm. uh, Radcliffe Hall was upper class and, and well-educated, et cetera, et cetera, and independently wealthy. You know, that's not a typical queer life, obviously. 
But still, I mean, like, I believe she lived openly with, I believe, two longtime partners for most of her life, right? The downbeat ending of The Well of Loneliness is a narrative convention. There are parts of the novel that very clearly sort of shadow Radcliffe Hall's. The biggest bummer part of the book, I think, doesn't, right? And that's kind of interesting, right? Mm. It tells us that, that hearing stories about this is where actually the, the limits are far more rigid than they were for actual people, which always makes me a little happy because I'm thinking at least, you know, I can imagine, right, that these are just bummer tales told by people who are having a much better time. But who knows? I mean, I do you think for me it's, it's also about the limits of narrating queerness mm-hmm. and the limits that we've only started to get away from right like yeah. we've, we have historically had just like if you want to write a novel about a queer life if you want to have a queer character in a movie something horrible has to happen yeah or 700 pages worth of it if you are yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah if you're a little life not to step into the the don't uh, step the, liter- don't the literary step. uh um, clusterfuck <laughs> of 2022 but um yeah, I mean, right? Like, I mean, people are still winning prizes, uh, raking queer people over the coals for 700 for pages. Um, excruciation. Yeah. Um, no, I remember publishing an article, I think in 2012, which is now 10 years ago, called Dead or Straight, The Conundrum of the Lesbian Coming of Age Story, because like every lesbian novel, including this one I had ever read, had some kind of tragic ending along yeah. those lines. And yeah. it was like a really pronounced theme that like Alex was saying, I started to have some questions about like, what message is this sort of overarchingly conveying? Yeah. Can I also just say, because we brought like class politics in just really briefly on this reread, I was like, this is like queer Downton Abbey. And then I was like, this is like queer Room of One's Own. And then I was like, wait, a Room of One's Own was already really queer. So like, oh, that's yeah. funny. Um, <laughs> but like, she- how do I put this? There's a very Downton Abbey sort of manner at the center of this, right? It's a similar, I don't know shit about like, you know, British politics of this era, but it seems like they are sort of the lord and lady of the county and they have all the villagers over for Christmas presents and they are very like Downton Abbey in that way. But I also really noticed, and Adrian, this made me think of the way that Blakey Vermeule teaches Jane Austen as like picturing upper class women just sitting in a room in a house and a man comes through the door and you say like, would you like to stay here forever? Or would you like to try your chances like leaving with that man? And like, if that man leaves, you don't know if another one is coming. There was a quality of that in this to Stephen's sort of revolving door of teachers who come in to like stoke sort of queer crushes and inspiration and like cracks of light into like an educated outside world. But it's such a cloistered world that Stephen is growing up in, in Downton Abbey Manor. And Adrian, it will shock you that I'm bringing this up. As we're talking about like the profound like queer and trans loneliness of this book, the only child loneliness is also very pronounced to me. And this line... For those who have started a drinking game, uh, now is the time to hit that tequila. <laughs> Alex, Adrian is so sick of my asking like every guest we have, like where they are in the birth order of their family because I'm obsessed <laughs> with it. But um, so I told you the only underlining I did was like every time I saw the word queer when I was reading this when I was 18, here's one of the rare underlines that I have from my original reading the text. This is page 14. It is doubtful if any only child is to be envied for the only child is bound to become introspective, having no one of its own ilk in whom to confide. It is apt to confide in itself. 
And this is like a real lodestar for Stephen's whole like mode of operation through the world, right? Like it's this constant inward turning that comes out of like this fundamental lack of allies early in life. So anyway, there's no question wrapped up well, in but there. Also, but that but was also models, what I was right? thinking about. And no models. Yes, that's, very that's, much. I think that's a really, I mean, that's a pretty common yes. 19th century trope. That's sort of where you can find some sort of earlier queer texts that sort of don't come out and say what they're about. Yeah. Someone growing up by themselves in the forest, which I think, I mean, I don't, I've never, I've been to Worcestershire, but I don't remember how forested it is. But like, you know, <laughs> Stephen is kind of living in isolation, which is why there are no gendered models out there, you know, among her peer group. And, and then basically people enter sort of as potential love objects that either Stephen's like, oh, yes, please. Or Stephen's like, you know what mm-hmm. which is much later right so i think that, that that's also it there's this kind of like you know, being in isolation like the idea being that that in isolation desire can sort of just figure out what it wants without having a peer group to kind of tell you how to express it correctly right mm. Mm. yes like and then there's the character of i mean not the character the inspiration let's try the inspiration of the character of um young nelson yeah. Who I feel like is the closest thing Stephen can come to having this identification. And in terms of only childness, yes, but I, I guess I'm not convinced that siblings would have saved Stephen from this early loneliness. Mm. Yes, and that's that's a very only child fantasy too, to imagine that siblings would have saved from the loneliness, you know, so totally agree. Well, as someone with a lot of siblings, I guess I'm going to yes. take the opposite. <laughs> yes, yes, totally. totally. <laughs> it doesn't always solve it. Um, but there's that moment, not that much further on, 41, where Stephen is identifying with young Nelson, is imagining themselves as similar to young Nelson, has this fantasy of how they look in their riding clothes that puts them more in line with this young boy and instead is interpreted as being like Violet, as being like the girl in the neighborhood Mm -hmm. and sort of has that moment of rupture where you see Mm -hmm. the loneliness, I feel like, in action where they're like, wait, I am not like this other kid, but other people seem to be interpreting me as like this other kid, but I, I know I'm not and I don't have anyone to say who I'm like other than this this fictional character who I who I just saw that someone else doesn't see that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There's like a double consciousness sort of budding in that between that, like an attention between how, how they are seen and how they see themselves. Yeah, totally. I guess another question I have in a more overarching way is like, we're 100 years after the publication of this book, right? And we've talked around how this book had inspired an obscenity trial upon its publication that like also made it kind of a bestseller of its era. But I'm curious what you two think of like, is there a present utility of this book? If so, what is it? Is this worth talking about? Is this worth teaching? Like, is there enduring value to this book? Or is it just like a desolate pile of bleakness that like we have moved beyond? That's not a yes or no answer. But like, what do you both think of that? I mean, one thing I would definitely point to, and this is actually kind of also in response to your earlier question, one dimension that I have this book that I think is hard for modern readers to grasp is Radcliffe Hall is working overtime to say nothing makes Stephen the way they are, right? Like this it's a is, very born this way book. This is yeah. born this way, right? Yeah. Which I think we're starting, and I think partly because of advances in awareness of trans lives and, and advances in trans rights, right? Like um, people are just coming around to that being the the immediately obvious baseline. But it's important to note that Hall, of course, is writing this 
to establish that idea in the first place was not something that was widely thought. And, and that can make this book, I think, a little hard to teach, that the basic mm. proposition of it is no longer even visible, I think, as a proposition outside of, let's say, very conservative and or, you know, very kind of disconnected from the zeitgeist kind of communities. I would imagine that like the idea that, you know, you can find the idea that people are born this way unlike e-entertainment news, right? Like they have reality shows about this. Th that's a part of it that I always sort of have to kind of draw students' attention to. And then and then they kind of shrug and like, oh, that's that's weird. But uh, so that, that that I would say ages the book or it makes it makes it hard to kind of be like, this is what Radcliffe Hall took to be a major point of this book. And mm -hmm. we don't even notice it as a point anymore because we're like, well, that sounds obviously right, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What do you think, Alex? Yeah, I respond to it more from an emotional standpoint where I, and as much as those of us on, currently on this call, on um, this recording and this, this this podcast, are surely in agreement that like gender nonconformity is not new, we sure do still face that discourse constantly yeah. Yeah. in the public sphere that this is new. This is somehow new. And I think it is helpful to have a, a text like this that you can point to and say, look, here's a very clear example of a way in which it is super not new but was that element was left out of the framing and discourse mm -hmm. of the book. It instead mm -hmm. got recoded as simply lesbian. Yeah. And so as that example, and as sort of one, one does in life, I think sort of the same thing Stephen does and sort of go searching through books for examples of like, who am I and where did I come That's from? Right. And how do I understand myself? Yeah. I think this is a great chance for that, but it's also a chance to talk about the way that though that can be difficult to do because the narratives you go looking for always end up holding a lot of pain. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. like talking about where that pain comes from and is that pain the birthright of trans people or is that pain imposed and, and subjected and part of like this long discourse with rights and history and, and who gets seen and how gets seen and, and yeah. how do we make this happen? Yeah, so I, I feel very emotionally about this as like I think it would have been perhaps transformative for me as a young queer to have heard a different framing of this book yeah. that said, yeah. maybe you could look to this. Maybe there is a novel. I guess that gets to another thing that the fact that this is a classic of use more than of reading like the, the narratives it transports and the way it was interpreted are as alex is saying are kind of a problem but what isn't the problem is the way lgbt people kind of ran with it right the way that this mm -hmm. became kind of like like the same way that Stephen turns to these sexological tracts, like this is how this book functioned, right? Like it was a, a book that people could sort of use. Like, I mean, I, I just always imagine like, you know, like meeting someone else in a bookstore because they're holding a copy of The Well of Loneliness. And it turns out, of course, they already own a copy of The Well of Loneliness. They're cruising, right? Like <laughs> this is a book that like <laughs> it just needed to exist in order to kind of demarcate and create spaces where people could sort of say yeah, me too and if ultimately the exact identities tied up in these kind of communities are probably you know 
imperfectly represented in that book. It almost doesn't matter, does it? There's something amazing about saying, I also don't fit in exactly the same way that people in this book don't fit in. Is this also true of you? And if so, would you enjoy grabbing a drink? And I think, I, I think, <laughs> so I, I think that on the one hand, like there's a lot of damage that the framing, the early framing of this book did, but I do think this kind of community creating aspect of it is just strikes me as so, as so magical, precisely because after all the trials were over, it was just really hard to say, right, that like, oh, I've just happened to be picking up a copy of The Well of Loneliness in this, uh, you know, Northampton, uh, Massachusetts bookstore, <laughs> uh, right? And like, no, I do not want to go on a date with you, right? Like, it's it, there's something quite, quite beautiful about that, right? I mean, like, that to me makes it kind of a unique classic in that, like, holding it in, in your hand, like, the fact that it was an object in the world is almost as important as what's between the covers in some way. I just, I have to give a shout out to Raven Used Bookstore in Northampton, Massachusetts. I mean, I think it would be a great place to buy a copy of The Well of Loneliness. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, think that, I think you both just made beautiful cases for this book's enduring relevance. And like, as you were talking, I was thinking what an interesting companion piece it would be to certain other books. Like Orlando already came up. This would be a fantastic book to put into conversation with Orlando. It makes me think about Giovanni's room a lot with its like Parisian love affairs, etc. Um, but like, I believe there's a ton of historical utility to the book. And I also have a lot of admiration for it on a sentence level. Like it's extremely flowery. That's totally my jam. Like not everybody would be into it, but I was into it on a writing level. I, yeah, I mean, I will say I, I recommended it to a, a writer who shall go unnamed, and their response was sheer horror. They were just like, with, with, with this is not a novel. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I was so wounded. I was so, like, <laughs> in my heart that um, I think I'm a little shy now to cross it upon others. I mean, for me, even more <laughs> than it's in conversation with other novels, which certainly it is, it's also in conversation with historical figures. Yeah. Yes. Uh, yes. And so quite a number of people who we might think might have identified with someone like Stephen and who were described historically as lesbians and for whom their lives may sort of trouble that distinction, if only there were language and where does language mm -hmm. come from and how does it come from in that realm and like how do we, how do we, we're, the same trouble that we have figuring out how to speak about Stephen mm -hmm. applies to how we speak about quite a number of other other figures. What are some of the historical figures that are coming to mind for you? I'm so glad you asked. I may be writing a book on this topic. What a coincidence! <laughs> um, I mean, one that comes to mind immediately is the artist uh, Claude Grain, uh, the French artist Claude Grain, who is commonly like their bio their autobiography is frequently called the first autobiography of, of a woman artist. It's described that way, and yet it also contains lines in which Claude their autobiography in which Claude very clearly says that they are not a woman, that neither male nor female has ever suited them, neuters the only gender that has ever suited them. Very clear statement, yet described constantly as a lesbian artist. Interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, there are many others, but I, I think the question of, this is a question we're, we're just constantly grappling with right now. How do we talk about the past without writing over it with modern language? and thus further silencing figures who may or may not have identified with that language, Oof, um, but so without reenacting the silencings of the past. Yeah. Totally. 
Who did, this is a gossipy literary question. Like, do either of you know who Radcliffe Hall hung out with? Like, did did she slash they have a milieu? This feels like very Bloomsbury adjacent, but I don't know that for fact. I don't know. No, there's a. I mean, there are a couple of figures in the book that are based on actual Londoners. I think Noel Coward shows up at some point. Yeah, yeah. I don't remember quite well enough, but I do think that the both the. Parisian stuff and the UK-based stuff is, to some extent, has some basis in reality. And of course, I believe mm-hmm. um, Juna Barnes-based... Yeah! Radcliffe also has a long career as a figure in sort of someone else's roman à clé, including, I believe, a, a Juna Barnes novel, the name of which is escaping me now, where there's a clear Radcliffe Hall kind of cognate in that book. So no, I mean, Radical Fall was well-connected, I think. That's what I thought I was remembering. I like it. Okay, well, we'll put it out to Twitter. If anybody else has any like interesting gossip on who Radcliffe Hall hung out with, please, please urgently get at us. That's the kind of information we need. I don't know. What else do you guys think is important to talk about in this book? Like, are there any stones we've left unturned that like you passionately think people should know about The Well of Loneliness or Radcliffe Hall? Well, one thing I think might be worth kind of reflecting on is that the negative affect of the whole thing Mm. I think is is really interesting because of course maybe it's why this book has been so enduring that in some way we've come full circle and we've sort of started becoming very suspicious and I have uh, Lauren Berland's cruel optimism lying on my on my desk here and right we've become very suspicious of kind of a blind affirmation around gender sexuality and sort of um, uh, you know, invalidating the real suffering, you know, uh, especially historic suffering. And I think that The Well of Loneliness is sort of a good book for that. And that, like, as we said, like, there is a, that there's this irreducible kernel of sadness uh, in that book that I think, well before the sort of tragic denouement, I think that that turned off uh, your friend, Alex, but, you know, I, I think kind of speaks to our moment again. And I think that that's kind of interesting that, that you know, something like The Price of Salt, right, with this famously happy ending in some way. I was thinking about that. It's like, gee, I mean, like most queer Netflix shows, I think the girl gets the girl or the guy gets the guy or whatever it is. There's something kind of bracing about like a book where, I mean, I mean I've mean, i read it so many times now, so it's hard for me to say for sure. But I kind of feel like on a first read, you're like, oh, this isn't going to go well, is it? Right? Like, because there is this sort of substrate of loneliness and the substrate of incommensurability for Stephen's biography from the first and you're like this it would be a weird thing for this to all end up okay yes and yet I'm not sure how much of that we also fill in from being incredibly trained to read tragic queer narratives like you know there's there's no way for this to go well on the text but I also feel like we are feeling part of that Sure, sure, yeah. The element that I would love to give a shout out to is the the wildly spiritualist bent by the end. Um, I remember uh, a couple of years ago, I think it was the New Yorker, did a piece on like the resurgence of astrology for millennials. And I was like, it wasn't the millennial guys, it was the queers. The queers have always been into it. And here we are with Stephen constituting, sort of summoning a community across realms and a bit across time and across space and and really taking that that bent totally again sort of totally speaking to a modern element i love that i think that's a fantastic element to bring in this time around too i was struck more than ever by also by the catholicism of it right there is a kind of uh like there's the spiritualism but then there's also like there is a kind of catholic dimension to it 
I should say specifically, I think British Catholic in the sense that like you're once again an outsider, right? Like you're you're a small minority. I mean, not persecuted during Stephen's lifetime, but like definitely with some famous, you know, famous memories of trying to blow up Parliament and all that, you know, and uh, Armada invasions, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, right? That that's a dimension of it that I'd completely neglected and, and forgotten about, but that's there too. Oh, it's so present in the early chapters when, like, when she falls in love with the maid Collins, and Collins has like a bad knee, and she's like praying to Jesus, like, please give me the bad knee, let me relieve this person that I love, and I'm like, oh, that is the self punishment of that is like so intrinsically <laughs> Catholic. I was also thinking about, in terms of stones left unturned, like the centrality, really, of the First World War in this story and of the character of Stephen falling in love with this woman, Mary Llewellyn, who she meets while she's like an ambulance driver and Mary's a nurse. And they have this like very torrid wartime romance that is sort of like the culminating relationship of the book. Like all of that makes me think of what an important site World War One was, obviously for the birth of modernism, but also for the birth of a lot of later developments in trans and queer politics. Like World War One is what left so many soldiers so disfigured that they started to figure out how to rebuild limbs, right? And that led to the medical side of transgender surgery. So I think World War Two or World War One is a really important sort of historical inflection point to bring into this like queer arc of history that we're drawing, even though it brings in a lot of other problems too. And that gives Stephen a path to sort of see themselves in action, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. which actually- In action, me, yes. Yes, which to me brings up uh, something you mentioned earlier about class. We, we've, we've, we haven't talked about Puddle. And oh my God. Uh, oh my that God. That is a, a stone. Tell us about Puddle. Left yes. turn right now. Thank um, you. So Puddle is the long time- made servant one of these emissary like educators from the outside world coming in through the revolving door of Stephen's education right i i and i think the long term the long term one right the one who who yeah, provides so. yeah stephen's guidance throughout their throughout their life and essentially becomes uh, a, a friend and companion but also like a friend who is always in employ mm -hmm, um mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. do we think petal is also queer because I think there is a reference that opens up that strong implications. Yeah, yes. strong implications. Yeah, which means that Stephen's ability to lead Stephen's life and be recognized as such, in so far as Stephen is, comes back to that point about class and is potentially a route that is not available to Puddle, who must only live her life in devotion to Stephen. That's really well examined. Yeah, totally. I mean. Class feels so critical, both to affording Stephen the privileges that you were just noting, and to this sort of like banging on the door, give us also the right to our existence, like demand or, or like need to be accepted by mainstream society. Like I think for people who were less class privileged and sort of less protected by those walls, I, don't, I can't say that that need to feel accepted wouldn't feel as important, but it might not feel as expected in a certain way. So that, that feels like an important role of class that I haven't quite figured out, too. Well, there's definitely, I think, I guess this would be a little bit later, but, you know, I, I often think about, like, the role of the valets of, like, famous mm -hmm. not-out gays uh, at the time, right? Like, where... Like, you see a bunch of shit, but, like, the whole class system sort of says, like, you don't talk about you're un unless you're called on the stand mm -hmm. because your your master foolishly 
sued, you know, um, Bozy's dad. Um, you know, you, I don't, I'm not sure this happened. I'm not sure there was a valet involved in that. But like, it was like, that what hypothetical guessing... is this? Yeah. Well, yeah. Um, but so, uh, you know, you'd end up um, kind of just covering, like, you know, maybe mildly disapproving, but covering. And so a puddle for me was like, it's the tricky part. Like, is there a queerness there too? Or is it just the kind of knowingness of, is it, is a, isn't there a moment where a young Stephen sort of compares puddle to a chair, right? There is this kind of like class sort of becomes sort of a background thing mm-hmm. and, and in fact sort of silently sustains the ability to lead a non-conforming life in that it sort of guards privacy right there's also the issue that like Stephen has both sort of same class and different class liaisons or interests right like there are mm-hmm. servants that uh, they fall in love with there are neighbors they fall in love with who are evidently quite wealthy which which is also interesting because of course I would say one of the paradigmatic stories right of male homosexuality or male uh, around that time would be things where there's a real pronounced class difference right where where there's it's a, a you know an aristocrat with you know more sort of working class younger men mm-hmm, mm-hmm. well I feel like we've turned some stones do you guys feel like stones have been turned. Stones have indeed been turned, and some Stones of them have been flung have been and like uh, tossed around. Maybe <laughs> we have a whole, we have a whole stone garden. <laughs> well, I I really loved rereading this book. I mean, it was really really bleak, and I was definitely struck by the bleakness. But I would say that my reading experience was mostly pleasurable. Do either of you have a summation like or unlike that? Well, mine was also mostly pleasurable. Um, as I said, I was I was. But I was also reading it through the lens of having thought that this was a, a, lesbian, right. a strictly lesbian classic and just right. sort of shocked what I was discovering. Um, I think my, my ongoing experience of it is going to be checking out what is printed on the cover in various places, in mm. various editions, looking to see whether it is consistently described as simply a lesbian classic or if we might start to loosen up that language to allow other people to find recognition. Yeah, let's see. That's a great question. My edition was published in 1990 and has a sort of like new agey sapphic portrait on the cover. And it definitely says as a subtitle, a 1920s classic of lesbian fiction. So this gives me like a vibe, like they're trying to give me related Netflix recommendations. Like if you liked Juna Barnes Nightwood, if you liked Virginia Woolf's Orlando, then you might try Well of Lolita. Like that's very much how the marketing reads to me on this edition. So I think we'll have to keep waiting for one that isn't <laughs> quite yeah. so explicitly lesbian. Yeah. Well, 1990 <laughs> is interesting, right? Because it's like, that's still probably advertised with a view to appearing in as many gay bookstores as possible, mm-hmm. right? And like, mm-hmm. and that's one of those interesting things where like visibility politics really matter. There, I think my impression was that at, in lesbian bookstores in the 90s were in some ways very, very absolutely amazing places, but they were... They tended to be pretty cis-sexist, didn't they? Like it, mm-hmm, it ended mm-hmm. up being kind of uh, there. could be kind of a norming um, uh, aspect to them. Yeah, I would also say that it's um, it's not as much of a bummer as I, I felt it was the first time I read it mm-hmm. when I also was also still myself in the process of coming out and all that. I also think I have become with age more tolerant of the idea that sometimes something is such a bummer that it's. It's kind of, it's ironic in itself. It's such an emotionally grand guignol fin- finale that you're like, like, I mean, whatever. Like, you know, if, you know, it's sort of a Tennessee Williams thing where like in the end of like, she was like, you're going to love this. I, I laughed so hard writing this. Like, um, that's like, you know, it, sometimes it's fun to stage 
a catastrophe and not really fully commit to it. Like, if that's true here, I don't know. But I do think that for me, it's always important to come back to it's a literary work and plays with literary conventions. And in the end, hopefully, um, the readers were able to see that, like, well, you have to close the story somehow. It doesn't mean that that's determinative of how my life will go. Um, although maybe that's, mm-hmm. that's um, hoping for too much. Maybe that, that's all you've grown up with. Um, it, it's just a lot harder. I mean, I, <clears throat> I still remember my husband and I talk about this all the time, but how we're only now discovering sort of in the age of prep, et cetera, et cetera, that on some level, that all the fictions that told us that anytime a gay man appears on the screen, they will get AIDS and possibly die or be on the verge of dying by the end of the movie, like that, that how much that fucked us up and how we really like, not in the sense that like it ever rose to consciousness, but that we sort of said like, like it, it was just part of our mental real estate and like how weird that is to like suddenly be like, oh, uh, there's this weird dusty cobwebbed part of our, our mental furniture that like we should probably throw out sometime, like if we can. No, yeah. I was just having kind of a similar thought of like, I'm, tr- I'm still trying to put this into words. I was having sort of a funny thought about like the bleakness of this book. And I was thinking about other lesbian classics, like, you know, The Price of Salt, which became Carol. And I was sort of like, since when do queer women need happy books to hit on each other over? Like how many first dates to Carol happened? But then I was sort of hesitating and I was like, well, how much is that just circumscribed by what's been available? Right. You know, <laughs> like I don't, I don't know the cause or effect directions of that. But Alex, I cut you off. What were you about to say? Oh, no, I, I, I cut you off. I think we were also responding to that, Adrian. That, yeah. you know, there's a lot to be said. I mean, I I relate to what you said um, quite distinctly. Um, my person and I are both trans. And I, I know vividly the first moment where we had to negotiate and had conflict about like, okay, what is your personal relationship to transphobia? How do you hold it? Right. How do you deal with the internalized part of it? And when, yeah. how do the different ways that we've both had to contend with it helped shape who we are now right. and what right. we want to get rid of and what we want to let go of. And that that final choice by Stephen, where they only see a choice in which Mary can only be happy, not with them. They, if they love Mary, they will, they will, right. they will be alone. They will accept that by virtue of being who they are, they should be unloved is I think a brutal choice, but one that gets in that worms its way in there deep a bit with mm. um with any kind of internalized homophobia internalized yeah. transphobia internalized cultural patterning of despair yeah and has to be reckoned with which actually weirdly is like one of the reasons i like this novel because yeah. it makes you as a modern reader reckon reckon with, with it yeah yeah we are not that far from like the cultural memification of trans death and trans pain yeah I love that. That also seems like such an, a healthy excavation to be undertaking in, in the relationship and the framework you're describing. Like that sounds like a painful and difficult conversation, but such an important and like bonding one that seems, I don't know. I just love how explicit you made that. Thanks. I, I, I wish I felt in a, in a solid one way or the other about it. I think it's just necessary. Yeah. But I think it's not. Yeah. It's, I, I want us culturally to be having these conversations where we don't where we allow the text to do both things, where we allow the cultural discourse to do both things. Um, yes. So thank you for making the space to talk about this this complicated book. I mean, books that everybody loves and agrees are perfect make for boring discussions, right? Like that's kind of our theory with the journey we're on now. Well, thank you both so much for joining me in this both bleak and delightful excavation. 
<laughs> the both and the both neither. I feel like, do, do either of you have any final thoughts you want to add or can we wrap it up here? Just that we ended up in a perfectly Radcliffe Hall um, place and that we kind of bummed ourselves out a little bit here, but that's, I think that's, that's <laughs> appropriate. <Totally> <laughs> yeah. uh, we're like, ah. <laughs> we're honoring a, a you know, a forebear uh, by, by bumming ourselves the hell out. <laughs> With our profound ambivalence. Yes, totally. Well, that sounds perfect. Yeah, All right. Take care. The Feminist Present is co-hosted by Adrian Dobb and Laura Good. It's produced by Laura Good and edited by Megan Kalfas. All of our original music is by Julie Herndon. We are eternally grateful for funding support from the Institute Named for a Woman in a building named for a woman, the Michelle R. Clayman Institute for Gender Research at Stanford University, where we are especially grateful to our feminist colleagues Cynthia Newberry, Allison Dahl-Crossley, Natalie P. Mason, Jennifer Portillo, Wendy Skidmore, Shivani Mehta, Carolyn Asante Darty and Morgan Kanan. The Feminist Present is also co-sponsored by the Changing Human Experience, producing deep ideas for a better world by supporting Stanford research in the humanities and social sciences.